Good morning. Palm Sunday. It's an opportunity on a day like today to be able to get a sense of the trajectory of the week, what the day signifies and where this day leads, and how this day connects to a Monday, Thursday, which connects to a Good Friday, which connects, of course, to an Easter Sunday. Palm Sunday. The day in which Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem, setting in motion a chain of events that would lead to his death, but his substitutionary death for you and for me. Now what stands significant for us is that this was no accident in time. This was an appointment with destiny. Not accidents in God's sovereign plan, but appointments according to God's sovereign strategy. And what you and I will find is that when we look very carefully at the scriptures, connecting the dots from the earliest of the chapters of Genesis onwards all the way through Revelation, there is a consistency through it all. And one of the unique consistencies is the relationship between the promises of the Old Testament and the fulfillments in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, there would be Peter. Peter would be standing in Jerusalem. And he would be standing there on the day of Pentecost, and he would be arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He would be speaking to religious unbelievers, skeptical. But what he would utilize is Psalm 16 as the passage of Scripture from the Old Testament that would make a significant statement credentialing Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 13, not Peter, but Paul. Paul would be standing in a synagogue. He would be standing there on a time in which, in a time in which people were wrestling with the credentials of Jesus Christ. And there what we find is that the apostle Paul, like the apostle Peter, in arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, would reference Psalm 16 as his basis for stating that three days later, Jesus was to be raised from the dead. What Peter and Paul share in common then is that they are making a significant statement with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Older Testament, making a significant statement with regard to this being a promise established by God as an appointment in time, not an accident. But furthermore, he uses this, both of them use this, to be able to reach the mindset of the unbeliever, showing how God is sovereign over both promise and fulfillment. So when you and I in the days to come are bumping into people wondering, what is the significance of Easter? What is the purpose of all these events? What we've got to be able to do is to thread this, connect this, and show how this is all part of God's sovereign strategy. So now we make our way to the passage that both Peter and Paul would have used to be able to make their argument, and it's Psalm 16. And here what you and I find is that the psalmist will be referencing himself primarily through these verses. But then all of a sudden, the pendulum swings, swings dramatically, 
And you and I are going to be able to spot in the oscillation of the pendulum the movement towards the ultimate one, Messiah, Jesus Christ. See if we can spot it. In verse 1, you and I are told that this is a mikdam of David. Mikdam is an obscure word in the Hebrew. It's found a few times in Psalm 16, as well as 56 through 60, primarily in the fugitive Psalms, where David is fleeing from Absalom or fleeing from Saul. And so here we find then David needing a sense of shelter, a sense of refuge. A meek dom of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will pour, not pour out. Or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Now here it comes. Look for this. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and even more particular now, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is rich, and what Peter and what Paul did was to reference this psalm as a basis of arguing for Jesus being Messiah and being resurrected, but we've got to figure out how and why and how this relates to our lives. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for these days. We know that there's a convergence this week of the secular and the sacred. In the basic secular, spring break. We know of the comings and know of the goings of people who are traveling this weekend and even on into the week. And so, Father, if they are away from us on through Easter, I pray that you'll bring them back safely, that we as a, a collection of believers with united spirits bring glory to the risen Savior. Use them wherever you place them. This week as we seek to connect with unbelievers in particular 
and help them to better understand the promise and the fulfillment strategy of our Lord. May we be using particular words that connect with 2015 living, but take them back to the Messiah who's eternal, who died on that cross for our sins. So, Father, with all this in mind, what I'm praying again with united hearts is that we, you, by your grace, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I was made aware of a conversation between a believer and unbeliever in Chicago, both graduate students, both philosophy majors. It was interesting how the believer was sharing the gospel with the unbeliever until they reached a point where, pivotal as it always is, she began to pose questions about Jesus. So he began to ask, and what do you think of Jesus? The unbeliever said, he is an incredible teacher, a tremendous moral example, great leader. Look at the impact that he has had even to today. The believing graduate student said, and what do you think about the resurrection? To which the unbeliever said, I'm not sure. But I know this. If it's true, it changes everything. He's on to something. At the very core of who you are as a person, that grave is empty, changes everything. At the very core, at the very epicenter, what's happening globally, if it's true, changes everything. The resurrection, then, would validate the promises of such settings as Psalm 16 in your Bible, and set in motion for the fact that if that could take place, thus the promise regarding all things future are valid as well in light of what the Scriptures offer us. So what I want to do with you now is look very carefully at these verses, 11 verses in Psalm 16, that both apostles Peter and Paul would utilize to argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and allow these to set in motion the way in which our conversations are going to take place, believers with unbelievers and so on, in the days to come. There are three significant descriptions of our Lord that are found in these verses that I want to check out together with you today, and I think they have incredible relevance for our personal lives. First, I want you to notice with me in verse 1 down to verse 4 that our Lord is the refuge of life. As David now begins to pen these thoughts for you and for me, 
He is a man who has consistently found himself on the run. And a man consistently looking for refuge. You and I are living among people that are refuge seekers. Storm victims in the challenges of life. Relationally, financially, vocationally. All of which finds its core in the issues spiritually. Now, David is not a man who runs from a battle. He would push, position himself in the midst of life's battles. But through all this, he is making a powerful statement to your soul and mine. It's an appeal that you and I might find in the midst of life's battles. Preserve me. Preserve me, O oh God. You can almost feel the sigh. For in you I take refuge. This is a statement of trust. He doesn't say, preserve me, my soldiers. He doesn't look at the armor that he could wear and say, preserve me, O armor. What he does is he turns to the one who is the true shelter for storm victims. Preserve me, O oh God. For in you, not in my abilities, not in my military prowess, for in you I take refuge. Now this morning, if you find yourself in the midst of the battles... You might characterize yourself as a storm victim. And you are in desperate need of shelter at this particular stage of your life. You've got to be able to embrace the one who will point initially and ultimately to Messiah. And be able to start by saying, I have a covenantal relationship with my Lord which you see in verses 1 and 2. And because he has this covenantal relationship with his Lord, he's able to say to his Lord, in terms of an appeal, preserve me. Oh God. Several years ago, at the exclusive resort known as the Greenbrier Inn in West Virginia, the news finally caught up with what had been going on. You see, during the Eisenhower administration, the Greenbrier was evidently constructing a new wing. The U.S. government was involved in an underground bunker that would house the House of Representatives and the Senate in case of a catastrophe, a national emergency. And so the prince had been laid out secretively in governmental circus, circles. And the bunker included a media production room, living quarters, and rooms for Congress people to conduct the nation's business. 
A staff had to be there to be sure that everything was ready in case the facility would someday be needed. Now, the cover story, the cover story was that the people coming in and out were TV repairmen for the Greenbrier. But then, in recent years, the bunker was decommissioned after a press story leaked. It leaked its existence. And so the massive facility evidently has never been used, not even in the Cuban Missile Crisis. As one writer puts it, it was an unused refuge. Quote, unquote. Now, when I look very carefully at what's happening in the world globally and yet what people are facing personally, aren't you struck with the fact that we've got a covenantal God who seems to be an unused refuge? As people are wearied by the battle of life, Are you making your appeal based upon the covenant? Now in verse 2, David goes on to say, I say to the Lord, now this is Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, you are my Lord, now small case, Hebrew word Adonai. Here is what's fascinating and related now to modern day new atheism where he says, I have no good apart from you. Now, I saw that phrase, I pondered that phrase, and my mind immediately went back to what was taking place in New York City over the course of the Christmas holidays, where a new atheist ad with a picture of Santa Claus appeared with these words, Why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness' sake. Now, how do you respond to that ad? Take the 2015 ad, link it back now to David's statement in verse 2. I have no good apart from you when they are saying, just be good for goodness' sake. Now, how do you respond in light of what David has written? If there is no moral lawgiver, our God, how can there be a moral law that prescribes, quote, unquote, be good? Because every prescription has a prescriber. This is a moral prescription. When you and I go to the pharmacist with our prescription, we stand at the counter and we hand over the prescription. We are handing over the prescription that comes from a prescriber. Somebody has the authorization to write the prescription. So now the bigger issue is who has the authorization to write the prescription just be good for goodness sake. That becomes the new question 
the new atheist is going to have to be able to answer. Because then you pose the next question, and what does good truly mean? Who, in fact, defines what is good? If it can mean anything for anyone, it means nothing for anyone. It's total relativism. And now you could take them back, say, to the Holocaust. Where, for certain Nazis, being good means annihilating Jews. But that might have been good to the Nazi, but not good for the Jew. So now you find yourself in some kind of dilemma. And if somebody is being put in a, in a vulnerable situation, it might be bad for you, but good for him. Flip it around. Sometimes we might say it might be bad for me, but good for him. No matter which way you turn in these arguments, somewhere along the way, somebody is going to be able to have to be able to say, I have the authority to define what is good and who is good. It comes down then to the issue of authority. Who is the prescriber behind the prescription? This is the kind of dialogue you begin to bring to the table, you see. And connected to the cross and the resurrection. Because the resurrection validates the fact that he is the good teacher when one approached him labeling him that, with that phrase. And then Jesus would say, but there's none good, but God, almost just leading him on to say, are you claiming that I'm God? Drawing him out, you see, because there's none good but God. And now here you have David who is saying, in essence, I have no good apart from you, but in this covenantal relationship, I have got the prescriber, not merely the prescription. And so it is in a covenantal relationship. If you know God through Jesus Christ, you know the prescriber. Therefore, you embrace the prescription, the death and resurrection of our Savior. Now, what David does for us at this point is that he then moves you and you moves me who are storm victims and the challenges of life. And he starts us off with, obviously, the covenantal relationship we should have with God and then moves us toward the social relationships we have with one another. Now, look very carefully at verses 3 and 4. If 1 and 2 are the covenantal relationships with God and verses 3 and 4 are the social relationships we have with one another, then in verse 3 and verse 4, he will now contrast your relationship with believers in verse 3 with your relationship to unbelievers in verse 4. Verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Look very carefully here. When he describes the believers, he describes the believers in plural in fellowship with one another. He and they. A saint is one who is separate, but separated for God. He is separated for God, but not separated from the trials of this world. 
he is separated from God to be able to appeal to the sovereign covenantal God in the midst of the trials of the world. We would love to be able to be separated from our trials. And yet here is David, and he is speaking first of all his relationship with God, one and two, then his relationship to others, verses three and four, which is the way you proceed in your thought processes. But you furthermore distinguish between believer and unbeliever, and he's saying, I've got such rich fellowship with those who have been set apart for God. In other words, what he is saying here, I am not isolated from this world, but I am insulated in this world. In all of our parenting, our grandparenting, if you are a student, if you are in various classrooms and so on, person on spring break, it is impossible to be isolated but it is possible to be insulated. And there's tremendous wisdom in understanding that. And so here now we find David, in essence, developing this line of thought. In these believers, he says, is all my delight. He thrives on fellowship with the Christian community, if we can call it my delight. Is it your delight? Sinful though we are. But now notice he's a realist. And likewise, what I'm saying is you've got to be a realist. Draw from this war-weary person. And he's saying, if that's the believers, I also want to be able to note for you the unbelievers. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Notice the sorrows and connected to the word multiply. Just as there are those who are distinguished by their relationship with God, there are those who are distinguished by their relationship absent from God. Their sorrows shall multiply. They don't have a worldview to be able to explain the basis and the reasons for their sorrows. They are disconnected while we, week after week, connect dots. They are so disconnected, they can't figure out the connection between their sorrows and their heart condition. You see? But David says, here's the reason. They run. They run after another God. Spiritual fugitives. Like an Adam and Eve in the garden, so likewise, even in today's circles. Even as we sung right after, or in the midst of the offertory, but as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross, which is exactly now what David is doing for us at this point. But he is so wise and so conscious of the challenges of those who are separated from God. He goes on to add, their drink offerings of blood, I'm not going to participate in that. I will not pour out. Have you created within your mindset a resolution? I am not going to participate in that 
which the unbeliever does that just brings sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow because they don't realize they are running from rather than running toward. Or take their names on my lips. There are certain things that are just simply not going to be said by David. What you have now done is this. As you've grouped together your thoughts pertaining to the Lord being the refuge of your life, you've started with the covenantal relationship in verse 1 and 2. You've moved to the social relationships in verses 3 and 4. And in those social relationships, you've distinguished between the believer in verse 3 and the unbeliever in verse 4. And now you have a better sense of just where do I turn in order to find true refuge. Happened in London. Winston Churchill gave the story of his escape from South African military prison in Pretoria. And he told after wandering in the region around Pretoria for two or three days and feeling so weary and about ready to give up, he decided that he was going to put himself on the doorstep of a particular house whose lights were twinkling in the valley below. There was a price on his head ever since he was able to escape the military prison. He knocked on the door. We're told that a man opened the door and asked him what he wanted. The prime minister, looking back at that time, said, I am Winston Churchill. Come in, said the friendly voice. This is the only house for miles around in which you'll find refuge. You've got something to say to refuge seekers. You've got a risen Savior who broke into the war weariness of human life. There's a second description. Because in verse 5 down through verse 8, not only is our Lord the refuge of life, but our Lord is the inheritance of life. Notice carefully the wording. The Lord is my portion, my cup. Does not say the Lord provides me a chosen portion and cup. He says the Lord is. So now the relationship of verses 1 and 2 spills over here now. And he talks about his inheritance. And what is he using here in verse 5 and again in verse 6? What he is using now are words taken from the conquest of Canaan. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. David, as a soldier, would have understood very well the conquest language of the days in which Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, David must have been pondering these words. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel 
And now as this military strategist, David, looks back over the military strategies of the conquest of Canaan, he utilizes conquest terminology as the land was being apportioned among the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord, he says, as he ponders now the promise to the Levites, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup, you hold my lot. And now as he furthermore thinks about his inheritance, and as you now are thinking about what does it mean to be an heir of grace, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now picture someone, an Israelite, looking over the land of Palestine. And he's pondering the lines in which the 12 tribes are being allotted, each to their own setting not to be disputed. And now ponder the significance of what's happening in Palestine today. Gaza, West Bank, Golan Heights. And notice here now how all of this relates not only nationally for the Jew, but internationally, globally, and historically for eternity for believers. And now he says, the lines have fallen for me because he's got a covenantal Lord who keeps his promises in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's saying that to you if you're in relationship with God. Verses 5 and 6 speak of God's grace. And verses 5 and 6 speak of God's grace. Verses 7 and 8 speak of God's guidance, and they go hand in hand. Now, if you're looking for direction in a directionally impaired society, embrace these verses. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, and literally in the plural for the Hebrew, in the nights also, my heart instructs me. Take the word also, that means then that during the day he's gaining counsel and during the night he's gaining instruction. Direction during the day, instruction during the night, all these things combining, converging. And so you and I now look at those points at the end of the day. And you are in one of those review preview modes and you're reviewing the last 24 hours, and you're previewing the next 24 hours. And there is this convergence that's occurring as your eyes are still wide open, though it's dark. Where do you go? Where do you turn? David's got your answer. I have set in verse 8 the Lord always, not sometimes before me. In other words, if you're looking for direction, you've got to be so God conscious. You've got to keep him right there, day and night. Because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He's got that sense of security. Do you? That's what the resurrection does for you, you know. It gives you security. Chuck Swindoll tells 
the time in which he was in the Marine Corps. Our ship one time was at the northeastern corner of Taiwan. We stopped there at the mouth of the harbor and awaited the arrival of the harbor pilot who came out, took the wheel of the ship, began to weave us through the pathless waters that led to the dock. At first glance, that seemed like an unnecessary thing to do. We could see the dock less than a mile ahead. But the closer we looked and the deeper we looked over the side of the ship into the crystal clear waters, we could see why we needed the pilot. There were mines located randomly beneath the surface of the water. If the hull of our ship had nudged a mine just enough, disaster would have occurred. But the pilot of the harbor knew where every mine was located and was able to guide us to safety. And your pilot knows where the mines are located as he brings you ashore. Refuge of life, one through four. The inheritance of life, five through eight. David's readers are pondering, they're looking, and still they're saying, give me a basis, give me a hope, give me a future. Here it comes. Because thirdly, our Lord is the path of life. In verse 9, he writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, even though he had started with this appeal, preserve me. What's going to keep him going at this point? And how can he rejoice? Here it comes, and this is why Peter could articulate this in Acts 2, and why the Apostle Paul could argue for this in Acts 13. My flesh also dwells secure. Look very carefully now at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, mock that phrase, or let your Holy One see corruption. The term Holy One in the Hebrew is Hesed. It occurs 32 times in the Old Testament, describing one who has been set apart by God, favored by God, for a particular task for God. This is one of the significant messianic terms used to describe the one we know as having been raised from the dead. Singular. It's meant to be rendered in the passive form, 
Literally, the one to whom God, the triune God, is loyal, gracious, or merciful. In Psalm 100, or rather, in Psalm 18, verse 25, with a favorite one, he said, You, O Lord, will manifest yourself graciously. And so what God is now saying to you and me is that he has distinguished his, his favored one, the one to be born in Bethlehem, the one to lead the sinless life, the one to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the one to die on Good Friday, the one to be raised at third day, we conclude that though Hasid is David, yet as part of the ongoing line and offspring of the woman Eve, and then Shem, and then Abraham, on through Judah to David, the final one of this Hasid strategy who embodies all that God has promised, is the Messiah himself, the son of David, Jesus. And that's why on that Palm Sunday, they were praising the one who is known as the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and it all fits together, and why a Peter in Acts 2 and a Paul in Acts 13 could argue from Psalm 16 for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or let your Holy One see corruption, though David himself would die. He had that hope and trust, both materially and immaterially, of a future, because there would be that ultimate final one who would not be kept in that grave, raised on that third day, therefore has future hope. Now you tie your refuge and your inheritance and your path all together. And in verse 11, we're informed, you make known to me. It's not hidden. In other words, be good for goodness sake. The resurrection validates the prescription and informs us of the legitimate prescriber. You have made known to me the path of life known elsewhere in the scriptures as eternal life, you see. Typically when I'm doing a funeral, I'll take the Bible of the person who's passed away spend time in that Bible, looking at the phrasing, the underlining, the various articles that are in there, trying to get a better sense and understanding of that person. Several weeks ago, I did the funeral for Joyce Munich, wonderful lady. And the passage I chose ended with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. A great eternal life statement. Several days later, when her daughter-in-law came to my office to get the Bible, she was very teary-eyed, and she sat down with me in my office and said, Gary, do you know in her daily reading schedule, and her mother had a daily reading schedule for all days of the year, what passage was designated for that day? I said, tell me. 
the one you chose to speak from. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And she asked, did you know this ahead of time? I said, no. But God in his sovereign strategy did, you see. So we could use that Bible to minister to her family and introduce them not only to the prescription, the path of life, but the prescriber himself, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Out of all that then, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what do you think of Jesus? The question's posed. Great teacher. Powerful example. What do you think of the resurrection? Quietness. And then the student looks up and says, I'm not sure, but I know this. If it's true, it changes everything. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The resurrection validates that claim. Prescription, prescriber are one and the same. No one comes to the Father but through me. A psalm for the coming days. Let's stand together. Now, first of all, Father, for those that we are going to be hanging with who have questions, sorrows seem to be multiplying. Storm-weary, they need a refuge. May we weave a, a road that leads to the path of life and points out the one who validates his claims by being raised from the dead. And just as an apostle Peter, an apostle Paul, could connect the dots... Now I'm praying that we can do likewise and get people to start thinking seriously about the significance of that empty tomb and put faith and trust in the risen Savior. So thank you, Father, for speaking to our hearts. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.